The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. The House Show. For over 20 weeks, the revolutionary force in retro sports entertainment podcasts. Ladies and gentlemen, the Retro Network proudly presents to you the trio's tag team champions of the world. The Masked Library, Kevin Hellions, Sweet Maddie Treats, and the Educator of Excellence, collectively known as The House Show. Welcome everyone to another edition of The House Show. It is me as always, Mr. Maddie Treats, and I am joined by my trios tag team partners us of course defending the trios tag team champion who do we defend against now that i think about it sequel quest sequel quest okay sequel quest go that'll be a bleep that'll be an edit uh so anyways to my left we have the educator of excellence uh the educator how are you doing today oh crazy crazy time it's the dog days of summer we're well into august still haven't had an official word as to what the expectation is at least the time of the taping of this show what the expectation is for getting ready for the school year i am getting crazy crazy hours for the driving school kids trying to get their licenses uh before college might restart uh, before the new school year might start in the fall, uh, getting some decent hours at the game store as well. My boss taking care of me with some retro trade, uh, making out like a bandit these days. That's great. You know, I do have a question for you, educator. I know you do the driving school. Um, how long, how long is a lesson usually? So a general lesson is a four, uh, one-on-one is a 45 minute lesson and we work on whatever individual skills, that the driver themselves feels that they need to work on unless it's just like their first lesson in a larger or first couple of lessons in a bigger package that they've bought. And then we just tiptoe the way through basic road skill, uh, road test skill sets needed and and building confidence behind the wheel. You know, I remember when I was learning to drive, I was, you know, a little shaky at first. I think we all are because you're driving the vehicle. You know, the best way to calm someone's nerves, just just put the house show on in the background. There you go. Let, let them listen to us. You know, I'm just saying, 45 minutes, you get through probably half an episode at this point. Yeah, half an episode. <laughs> um, but, you know, just put it on a little promotion for us. Just, just a thought for you there, there educator. All right. And to my other side, did I say left or right? I don't know. Uh, anyways, it is the mass library, Mr. Kevin Hellions. Kevin, how are you today? I am doing well. I am all excited. It is almost, I am days away from being able to shave my quarantine beard. By the time this episode goes up, I probably would have had a picture of it up on my own social media. And I'll send you guys a picture of it. And it's mostly gray. It's it's a lot of gray. I'm a little disappointed. You are looking like Goldberg and Santa Slay. There you go. Just as jacked too. Oh, oh, oh baby, <laughs> absolutely. And uh, I want to, I, I want to say for when I was learning to drive, I did not put on the house show because it didn't exist yet. Um, I put on King Diamond, and I scared the person that was teaching me how to drive. He thought I was playing devil music. 
You should. I don't. I don't even know what to say to that. What is King Diamond? Is that like metal? King Diamond is metal, and he has a ridiculously high pitched voice. That when you're used to it is incredible, but when you're not, is the weirdest thing you've heard. I thought King Diamond was Scott Hall in WCW. <laughs> that, no, no, no. That's Diamond Stud. Oh, J- oh, okay. Oh, man. Jimmy Dean is he the one with the sausage? <laughs> Yeah, uh, no one's going to understand that reference except for Elise. We love you, Elise. She doesn't listen to the show. No. Your wife doesn't listen to the show. My wife doesn't listen to anything I record or anything I or read anything I write. Yeah. Well, I don't blame her there. <laughs> Sounds about right. Same here on my end. <laughs> yeah. You know what, guys? I, I do want to I want to start right on the pay-per-view today. I, I don't have any sort of, you know, poo stories or anything like that. Um, I, I just have a question this for you. This would be the time for it in WWE. Any edgy content like that? Well, you know what? Edgy content. I do want to bring that up. What did you guys think of this intro video? Not so much the video itself, but the, ooh, sexy baby, triple X. Oh, God, oh girl, I want you. I need you during the video. Eh. <laughs> that was it? So you didn't like my sexy girl? No, voice? no, no, not at all. Nah, I wasn't a fan. It wasn't exactly the same kind of montage footage uh, that we are, you know, super hyping the show. It was what it was. I wasn't too overly impressed with it. So I was watching it um, and my kid was like running around the house, playing toys, watching YouTube, whatever. And all of a sudden that like the opening starts really going like treats parodied here. And I'm like, oh, God, I hope he's not paying attention to what I'm watching. Like, I don't (laughs) have to explain anything. I don't want him to all of a sudden be like, what is that on TV? Like, I was just hoping it would go away. And, but I think like it was WWF bringing in a lot of what was going on at the time. Like, do you guys remember when the Howard Stern show was on E every night? Right. You know, having stuff like that. Um, if you don't know what it is, look it up in an incognito window, but you had like vivid was an actual, like, supermodels at the time right so you had stuff like that you know like a lot of what would have been edgy sexy content was mainstream and people you know didn't care it was just what it was at the time looking back you're like i can't believe we did this i can't believe i watched raw with like my mom in the room you know yeah it uh it's amazing you know it's funny you bring up the howard stern on on e i mean think about like all of the people the stern show has gotten over over the years and then compare that to the obviously the attitude era like it's just such a it's such a weird time i mean when you have kenneth keith callum back getting uh getting airtime on stern for blowing smoke through his eyes and then you you watch this that sounds like something russo would have booked absolutely oh, oh the influence is totally there yeah you know what's funny though you guys think i parried parodied uh that video verbally i actually made a intro music for us compared to that okay so i'm gonna play that for you right now are you ready the house showstopper sexy the main event production guy the icon maddie treats the masked library blindfold me the Hellion Rebellion. Show that Pokeball. The Dad Joke Zaddy. Tell it again. The Educator of Excellence. 
Retrosexual. The instructor of intelligence. Teach me, Daddy. The professor of pain. Show me that now. Together they are the house show. Enter through the back door. So yeah, there's that video, guys. I uh, I hope I did. I hope I did you guys justice. Yep. It's the best compliment I've gotten for those sounds. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so we are greeted, guys, by uh, uh, Jerry Lawler and Jr. There, we've kind of settled into that. Of course, this is taking place after the Montreal Screw Job, so it is very interesting to see how far we've come compared to our last in your house, of course, uh, bad blood. Um, yeah. What a difference two months makes. I mean, it's right out the gate guys. Right. Am I, am I wrong for, for saying that? I mean, even looking at, you know, we always talk about the pyro and the set and what did you guys think of like the industrial DX made from the scaffolding? Just a whole, a whole different kind of presentation, a whole different look to the show itself. It's just crazy how much, um, how much changes in that what was you know that little amount of time. You've got three of the f- four stars that were left in the main primary heel stable that are gone. In fact, they just had wrote out Jim the Anvil Nightheart the previous week on Raw, uh, and they showed clips of his involvement in pretty much his last match. Uh, we've got commentary mentioning Bulldog is, quote, injured and probably won't be coming back. We've got mentioned that Brett has now gone south, so to speak. Obviously, he's now working for WCW. And uh, we eventually see uh, the last of the remaining members of the Hart Foundation. They do make a, you know, a return during the final uh, main event of the night. It's stunning that it's two months. You would have thought it was like two years in between right. these in your houses. It's it's almost like a TV show that had a good season one, a better than expected. So they gave them a bigger budget for season two, but you still had time in between. Um, it also like the more and more stuff that goes on for the evening with Bret Hart leaving with the Monday Night Wars and certain other things. You have a large roster. They got a lot of guys. They don't have a lot of top guys, though. No, and I think that was a thing where WCW had at this time. You had probably like six, seven guys you could put the world title on instantly, and a handful more, so probably a dozen total that you could have with like a week or two buildup. WWF doesn't have that right now. No, yeah. So you know the date is December seventh, nineteen ninety seven. We are in Springfield, Massachusetts, at the Springfield Civic Center. A little over 6,000 people are here at the event. And one thing I noticed about the crowd that stuck out like a sore thumb is the amount of signs. So many signs. They have really pumped it up and said, we want to hear your voices. We want to hear that attitude. You know, that's that stuck out for me. Um, I, you know, we alluded to the DX set. I think the set is a more minimalistic, more like a gritty look to it. Um, just because the the production of it, it wasn't like an elaborate thing. So I think that was what they were going for. Of course, you know, some people, um, as uh, we were talking earlier in our production meeting, if you will, um, some people said this was the official kickoff to the Attitude Era. Essentially, a lot of the um, kind of more of essentially a 
uh, I guess you would call it more of a reality-based presentation, kind of blurring the lines, so to speak, of uh, the fourth wall, um, blurring the picture of the then announcer to now authority figure slash owner really overseeing and having his thumbprint on the what's going on on TV kind of deal. We eventually see that the very next night after this pay-per-view as he overturns the victory and overturns a match, uh, one of the championship match results and so on. So, yeah, this is essentially uh, out with the old, so to speak, with the, the, the good guy versus bad guy, Heart Foundation, and now we're moving forward to this reality-based presentation. Uh, the the violence, the sex, the disrespect, right. you know, all of it, it's all here. Yes, a lot's copied from ECW, obviously. Um, but they didn't, they forgot to bring over great wrestling. <laughs> Where we got, we got the era here of it's more important to get the storyline over or the controversy or the gimmick or whatever than to have a good match. Yeah, the quality presentation for the match, the in-ring product, wasn't exactly the greatest. Yeah, so why don't we get into some great wrestling product <laughs> with our first match of the night, which is going to be Too Sexy Brian Christopher uh, taking on Taka Mishinoku. And this is for the inaugural WWF Light Heavyweight Championship. Um, what did you What did you guys think of this match? I'm still like finding it weird adjusting to Howard Finkel talking about how this match has a one hour time limit. I'm like, are we back again in Jim Crockett, NWA? Um, interesting that we hear Brian Christopher coming out to different music than the last pay-per-view we discussed him on. I don't remember off the top of my head if this was a, a hard edit over the original broadcast or if this was the music. The music he came out to ended up becoming Draz's music when he eventually debuted in uh, WWF later. Um, very front start of the match. We got the crowd interacting, chanting the whole idea of Jerry's kid to really get a reaction from Brian Christopher. Uh, Takamichi Noku. Uh, starts the match with two uh, pretty uh, decent-looking drop kicks, clotheslines Brian Christopher over the top rope, and does one of his signature move sets where he does the run across the ring, hurdle himself to the top rope, and dive over the top rope doing a plancha onto Brian Christopher. Um, we get action back into the ring, and eventually Christopher throws Takamichinoku out to the floor, and this certainly was uh, an accident, I'm sure, that happened. Brian Christopher climbs to the top rope and jumps off the top rope towards the floor as if he's going to do a double axe handle. Uh, but I don't know if he overshot the jump or slipped wrong when he landed, but he ended up basically face planting on himself or throat planting himself or whatever on the, the barricade at ringside. And uh, a moment or two later, we see that he... I don't know if he bit his tongue in the process of doing so or if he bit his lip, but he busted his mouth open and pretty visible bleeding. We get a couple of uh, face shots of just completely bloody mouth and him spitting out blood running. It's running down his chin uh, throughout the match. Eventually, the match gets back into the ring. Taka Bichinoku hits a swinging DDT from the second rope onto Brian Christopher only for a two count. Uh, Takamichinoku does a Hunakurana uh, to the floor to Brian Christopher, and then Taka ends up hitting a second rope or a second really turnbuckle 
acai moonsault and just the way that the angle was it was just a pretty spectacular looking move jumping from the turnbuckle corner to the floor uh onto brian christopher eventually we uh get action back into the ring uh brian christopher recovers and we end up seeing uh a move that eventually becomes chris jericho's breakdown eventually Miz's skull crushing finale that basic full nelson face slam uh, and that actually got a pretty decent crop from the uh, pop from the crowd itself. Brian Christopher hits a sitting raw uh, sitting power bomb on Ataka Michinoku for a two count. Brian Christopher climbs to the second rope and does a drop kick to the back of Taka Michinoku's head. That got a pretty decent again pop pop from the crowd. Brian Christopher then used a very awkward looking what Jr. called a rocker dropper. It was basically a lazy man's. Famouser onto the back of uh, Taka Michinoku's head to plant his face into the mat itself. Um, there was a lot of heel work for Brian Christopher for the next few minutes. Uh, and then eventually he hit a very stiff belly-to-back suplex onto the back of Taka Michinoku's head that looked just awkward, the landing itself. Uh, Brian Christopher hits a power slam on Taka Michinoku and then sets him up for uh, what, to me, I'll always refer to as the Alabama Jam because I'm such a huge mark for Bobby Eaton, but what they refer to as the Tennessee Jam. It's just basically a jumping leg drop off the top rope. Um, Brian Christopher misses that leg drop off the top rope. Takamichi Noku then recovers and immediately goes for the Michinoku driver uh, to a pretty big pop from the crowd, and we got a one, two, three count and a new... Uh, WWF inaugural, so to speak, at least this run, uh, inaugural light heavyweight champion. Uh, after the match, trying to hype that this is a big deal, that we have an international star uh, that has signed with the WWF and we're now just launching this division. We see uh, WWF, known WWF agents, Pat Patterson, Jerry Briscoe, Tony Gurria. They come into the ring, shake hands with Taka Michinoku. Jerry Briscoe uh, hands or awards over the WWF light heavyweight title. And then we see a bunch of photographers um, enter the ring and start taking pictures with the three agents and Taka. And I don't know if you guys noticed, Jack Doan kind of snuck himself into the picture in the background, trying to be a part of uh, some of those photos that were being taken. Uh, very good, great opening match and a uh, good way to start, start the show and a decent way to start this uh, new division that they're trying to make something uh, comparable to WCW's presentation. It was, I thought the finish of the match really came out of nowhere, especially after the beating that Taka was taken for most of the match. Um, Waller has a great line, which I think a lot of wrestlers need to take into their psychology. And he said, I could have been my opponents in 30 seconds, but I wanted to entertain the fans. And I just thought there was like a great heel line of explaining stuff and still looking tough, still looking like you could beat anyone, you know, backing up your talk with it. Um, Brian Christopher, there was just something about it in this match that his work seemed like he knows how to copy moves, like he knows how to copy what his dad does and what he grew up watching, but he didn't know how to make it his own, I guess is the best way I can, I can put it. Um, you know, he looked like a good clone, but he didn't look like his own person for a lot of the match. And I mean... You know, I remember seeing this originally, and okay, WWF has a light heavyweight division. It'll be something like the cruiserweights, and that just never happened. Absolutely never happened with WWF's light heavyweight. I don't know why. 
there's certainly talent that WCW hadn't picked up yet. And WCW, for as much as we'll make fun of a lot of things for it, and rightfully so, that cruiserweight division was almost always spectacular. Without a doubt. And just WWF's late heavyweight does not is not on the same level by any means. WCW tried to do a version prior to their cruiserweight uh, division. They had a light heavyweight division in the early 90s, like 91, 92. Um, It initially started with matches between Brian Pillman and Jushin Thunder Liger. Eventually, um, Brad Armstrong won the championship. And then even at one point, we saw um, the... Scott Levy, who was playing the role of Scotty Flamengo, who eventually turned into Raven. He was a champion. Uh, He was a champion in that division. The division wasn't as well received as the cruiserweight division uh, whatsoever. So I don't know if there is just a stigma to the name light heavyweight. Because, I mean, WWF really didn't do really well in promoting this division and getting it over as well as WCW did. Uh, I don't know if it's just the name itself was just a better play for WCW's version compared to WWF's attempt at the time. Um, Interesting thing of note that I thought, and I don't know if you guys saw the, the idea of what the weight division was for this light heavyweight division and the very vast difference between Taka Michinoku, who was supposedly billed at 202 pounds, versus Brian Christopher, who was labeled as, I believe, the maximum, the 215. And Not even... And even Jerry Lawler made comments about how Brian Christopher's in the gym, he's working out, he has to work hard to lose the weight, blah, blah, blah. Such a significant difference. I mean, like, Brian Christopher is, like, he looks like big jack, like, wellness policy violation if it existed kind of deal. So um, I, I enjoyed the match itself. Uh, and, yeah, the commentary throughout the match was also entertaining as well. You know, they could do something with that weight limit, um, like a, a worked version of UFC. Someone's cutting weight. They cut a dramatic amount of weight. They're passing out while they're, you know, b- having the weigh in. But then they go ahead and eat and get rehydrated. And now you look like that for the pay-per-view. Don't actually make them do it, of course. Even right. In, even in MMA, it's a horrible, or wrestling, it's a horrible thing. Like, you know, amateur wrestling. I think you I remember do it WCW. Yeah, I think I remember WCW doing a similar storyline when I think it was Disco Inferno yep. was the champion, and he like had to cut weight, and they like measured his weight like the night of every match, and like he was a pound or two over, so he had to go nuts and cut weight, and then didn't he carry a scale with? Don't him? Don't remember if he carried an actual scale, but I just I remember one particular night he ended up being like crazy blown up in the ring, and I because he was exhausted, and I think that's why he ended up losing the title that night, but. I, I just do remember that. So it's interesting that you bring, like, the, you know, what potential storylines could have come up from this. Yeah, then uh, end of the match, it looks like they searched high and low in the crowd to find the one Asian in the crowd so he could cheer for Taka. Oh, man. And then well, they, like, focus in on him for, un- like, uncomfortably long. And then as they're taking a picture and Taka's holding title, JR says, this will make the headlines in Tokyo in a matter of hours. And I'm like, boy, remember that when it would take hours or days for news like that to come out? Now, like, 
we can watch stuff in Japan live on our phones. You know? Right. Yeah. So I had a, a couple questions came up uh, for me when I was watching this, and I wanted to open it up to you guys. Um, I, I know you guys just brought up the cruiserweight division in WCW, and of course, I think um, probably the most well-known cruiserweight title match was probably was it Rey Mysterio Eddie Guerrero at Halloween Havoc '97. Happened about two months prior, two three months prior to this. So, was there a light heavyweight division match that's looked on as the best one in the WWF? Because we talk about the division, but there's like there's nothing that really sticks out, and nothing that I I mean I really don't remember much of you know the light heavyweight division at this time because it what it lasted a couple years. A couple years ended up during the invasion angle. There was a planned match between then champion X-Pac for the WWF light heavyweight title with uh, Tajiri, who had won the cruiserweight title. It's escaping me right now. It might have been from the Hurricane or um, somebody else from the Alliance end. There was a planned match. I think it was supposed to be at Survivor Series when they were doing the WWF versus the uh, Alliance storyline. And like when they merged the Intercontinental and the U.S. titles, when they merged the Tag Team Championship, there was a planned storyline, but X-Pac got injured. And so they just like quietly said all the WWF titles going away and they rebranded when the WWF won that the cruiserweight title was now the WWF cruiserweight championship. You're right. Nothing really super jumps out to mind. Perhaps maybe the most notable would have been the WrestleMania 14, uh, the Taka Michinoku defense uh, that he had and he ended up winning that match because it was in a, a, a very large crowd. Um, I think it was at what Boston WrestleMania 14. So, yeah, and that was against I believe Aguila, who ended up becoming Papa Chilo with uh, eventually with Lita, and unmasked Aguila turned into Papa Chilo, who a few months later ended up becoming uh, managed by Lita. Didn't Dean Malenko hold it for a little while? Yeah, he had actually a pretty good run, and he traded it back and forth with Scotty Tuhati as well. Yeah, I feel like Scotty Tuhati had, had like a two matches. or three week reign, and uh, like uh, then they had an amazing match at a pay per view that was like super well received, and ended up being like four stars, four four and a half stars. And then the other question that just kind of came up is obviously with Brian Christopher, what is going on with the storyline of them sort of winking and, and acknowledging that he's the King's son, but not really doing it. Like what was that storyline for this? Um, I know on commentary, obviously JR constantly brings it up and we make reference and it's great commentary. It does make for good stuff, but why was it such a big deal that, um, that, that it was his kid and they really wanted, wanted, um, you know, wouldn't acknowledge it. Allianz, I'm going to defer to you. Um, to me, I just I don't remember too too much about them doing a lot with that angle until later on down the road when they had Al Snow and Head with the Head and Shoulders mat that t- weird tag match, and they ended up tagging up together in the ring. Um, I, I remember that, and maybe they just tongue in cheek with the history that Lawler had with women and minors and blah 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 they didn't want to perhaps go down that rabbit hole as to who is his mom i mean i i'm just speculating i'm guessing i don't know if this is the case but maybe they just didn't want to perhaps open that up and really 
really explore that and what the implications maybe could have come from it. I'm, I'm my, guessing. My understanding was always that this started in Memphis and Brian Christopher wanted to prove himself and not be Jerry's kid, the booker, the you know, the king of Memphis. He wanted to prove himself on his own and get, you know, work on his own and all. But it ended up becoming like a big open secret. Like everyone kind of knew, but it wasn't publicly acknowledged, but everyone knew. I guess that kind of makes sense now that you put that spin on it. Um, given with, let's say, Jeff Jarrett and owner Jerry Jarrett being the bookers and the owner's kid and blah, blah, blah. I, I know there was a lot of stories that, you know, people that worked in Memphis and worked for Jerry Jarrett were frustrated that Jarrett, you know, his son, Jeff, 18, 19 years old, driving a, a Trans Am or a very high-end sports car, whereas other guys are only getting 20 $30 payoffs for their matches and so on. So, yeah, I guess you can kind of, I can see that particular reason why to avoid that as well. Yeah. Then I think it was like pre, you know, Mr. McMahon character. We all know he's the owner, but we all play along like he isn't. I think it was kind of like, we all know that that's his son, but we all play along like it isn't. So then after the match, there there is like a weird cut, which is probably like we said, a commercial or something like that usually is what it is. Um, and so, I know when we go through the history of the WWF, WWE, we think of great songs, um, you know, with my baby tonight, probably being number one, um, Jim, you know, Jim Johnston always making classics. What do you, where do you think the Los Barricos rap breaks? Oh, I, am, I mean, is that top five? I'm shocked. We didn't see it on SmackDown karaoke. Oh man, that would have been great. <laughs> And the thing is, is that this, I mean, I believe this was the debut of their new theme. Uh, I mean, they ended up carrying this theme over for the rest of the Barricos run, including when it kind of phased out and Sabio was basically a singles guy again, but a pseudo heel, um, especially when he uh, was a substitute in a future match main event that, you know, everyone was kind of deflated when it was revealed he was subbing in that match. Um, I'm not sure what WWF was trying to accomplish at this time. Were they just trying to do a redo of the, the Nation of Domination and JC Ice and Wolfie D doing the rap to the ring? But man, this was awful, awful. And the other three guys that were trying to sing... I mean, I mean, the only one that looked decent was Miguel Perez trying, and he was like the whitest of the four uh, there. It just, he, he came off. It, it just, the whole thing came off as very corny. And I, I just, ugh, crazy. All right. So I got to, I want you guys to rank these four, okay? Oh, God. Los Bariquas rapping to the ring. Mm-hmm. Men on a Mission rapping to the oh. ring. Our Truth rapping to the <laughs> ring. God. Or J.C. Ice and Wolfie D. rapping to the ring. Oh. Rank them from best to worst. Best would have to be Truth's version. Uh, agree. Because he would at least update the lyrics, mm. uh, you know, and would put new spin. Think about this, too. How Think about, like, how long he's been rapping the same What's Up song to the ring. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, he, he and he was doing it with Road Dog in his first round when he was K-Quick. K-Crush and all that stuff. We may see that entrance on a future In Your House pay-per-view. We may. Uh, so I would say, Hellions, help me out. You about Truth, right? At the top? Tr- truth at the top out of those four. Um, Probably Men on a Mission because Oscar 
I, Oscar got his job freestyle rapping. Freestyle rapping, exactly. Man, and he got hired. Podcast, with, I think it was Pritchard's podcast yeah. that he got freestyle, and like he called in, and they're like, "Yeah, I, I was told to call this number. I'm so so and so." And Vince was like, "Yeah, yeah, let him into this blah 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 show," and they ended up, yeah, he got he ended up getting a job and was stuck with Men on a Mission. Um, All right, so I'm going to say the the three and four. Let's throw it over to the death metal expert Kevin Elliott <laughs> to tell us who is three and who is four for the rapping to the ring. Uh, uh, honestly, I'd put J.C. Hayes and Wolfie D third, and then Corey Chris fourth. I agree. It was so bad, and I believe this was the only attempt that they tried rapping live. And then the when they redid the when they dubbed the music, it was all already mixed in and they just walk to the ring during their entrance all right and that brings us to match number two which is los bariquas versus doa and by the way guys we are lucky because this feud the los bariquas versus doa was was won the award for worst feud of the year from the wrestling observer newsletter awards in 1997 so it's a far cry from the uh the Hart Foundation versus Austin and his people or, and whatnot. So what did you guys think of this match? Uh, we've elaborated on this before. There's just way too many guys with very little character development that gave us a reason to want to be invested and want to care. Um, so this version of the match is, well, uh, Crush, is, Crush is injured, I believe. Um I don't remember off the top of my head. Was this the uh, uh, the crush was injured because he was attacked by Kane? Was that the issue? I think it was. Yeah. So crush yeah. was injured. So they ended up doing a six man tag, and the odd one out ended up being Savio Vega. So I mean, I guess they're trying to push the other lesser known guys uh, that we're not too familiar with. Um, so at the beginning of the match, we get Savio ejected by the referee. He wanted to stay around ringside, but the referee, Tim White, you know, threw him out and uh, so that there wouldn't be any interference. Um, there wasn't really too, too much to invest in in terms of my, my interest in the match. Uh, the only things I have of notes, I just thought it was interesting that Miguel Perez was selling a knee injury like crazy and him rolling around as much as he did at the beginning was a tell that it was a fake planted injury. But I thought it was cool or what really tried to save it was when Savio Vega came back to the ring and jumped up on the apron. Like, okay, I guess I am going to sub in the match because there was like constant when the two remaining Bariquas were left over when one would tag out, or tag in the one that tagged out would actually go down to the floor, check on him a little bit, and then would get back onto the apron. The, the ring attire for these guys is still not doing any of them any favors, especially when you're looking at, um, you know, Savio Vega had more of like a full chested outfit where only his arms were physically exposed. Why couldn't a similar outfit for 
uh, Miguel Perez be used. I mean, that guy is just body hair all over, so that only his arms would have been exposed. It's just he he wasn't wearing a very flattering attire. And the other two guys, they had their pants hiked up so high. In fact, I believe um, Jose Estrada had his pants hiked up so high that, like, his un- I think he had his T-shirt tucked into his underwear, into his pants, because you see, like, his underwear riding out later in the match. And again, just not very, very flattering. I'm sure these guys were probably, like, top stars and were better presented in Puerto Rico, where I believe was where they were primarily from in terms of, like, their bulk of their career. WWF did not do them any favors with this particular gimmick, the change in the ring attire. Um, Miguel Perez ends up having a crazy knee injury. Savio tries to substitute into the match, but Tim White is still continuously adamant, no, you're not in the match itself, and throws Savio out again. Uh, so the remaining two Bariquas, they actually do pretty decent tagging back and forth for being the short man out. Eventually, there's a melee in the ring, and the referee is distracted. And I don't know why they had to make a big deal about the referee being distracted, but then we see Miguel Perez re-enter back into the ring and does like basically a front flip into a leg drop over uh, the head and shoulders of Chains as he is trying to do a pin on Jose Estrada. So he does this quick flipping senton like leg drop onto Chains. Jose Estrada rolls him over and gets the cheap pin. One, two, three. Um, nothing to superly brag about. And I think this the time for uh, the Bariquas is already starting to run out here. The that knee injury in the cell I liked a lot. That was some that was good storytelling. Um. The Boricuas, like you're saying, for their ring gear, they don't look like wrestlers. They look like a bunch of dads that just got their weekend to-do list. Exactly. Like, All right, I, I got to stain the deck, and there's a leak on this faucet. Now I got to I gotta go get the oil change and all, so let me just throw on these old clothes. I'm not worried about if they get dirty, and I'll head out there. Oh, and I, I need to sing my way to the ring, too. And not to be a complete mark, but I'm going to be for a moment because as we record this, it just happened. You could have had one of them, any of them, Savio or the whole crew do what Eddie Kingston does and make that group more over. Like to cut promos, to talk about struggle, to talk about what they've gone through and all like the nation has their gimmick and their mouthpiece. DOA has it. You could have had that for Los Boricuas and gotten them over or at least somewhere other than just hanging out, you know? And and honestly, like, unfortunately, that's what Los Boricuas has looked like for most of this is they're just there. It's, it's just to fill time on the card. Yeah. And is this the, I mean, it seems like we've been going through this um, NOD, DOA, uh, Los Bariquas feud for how long now? I mean, we've seen this like half of is that year. Third, yeah, is this our third straight in your house where there's been some combination of of this match? I I, I think we had Ground Zero. We had the triangle match between the three leaders, right? And then Bad Blood. They threw that on the card because of the Pillman death, and now we have this again. Cramming it down the throat, our, the fans' throats, the viewers' throats, 
and hoping that something would stick and something would be responded to and being well received. And unfortunately, um, I really don't remember anything spectacular coming from this particular feud that was memory worthy. Do you guys think that the reason this feud kind of dragged on was because we're in the three hour pay-per-view? I I really think so. It's just a matter of filler and uh, justifying the price to admission and having um, quantity over quality. Yeah, you can easily say, oh, let's throw some combination of these guys out there, have them do a match, and we fill up 20, 25 minutes between promos, you know, entrances, all of that. Now, now there's 20, 25 minutes show we don't have to figure out. Moving on. Right. Like, it's kind of a lazy, it's kind of a lazy writing, booking thing. Well, I think we see that on Raw now. They're just trying I, to fill time. I, I, honestly, I feel like Raw and SmackDown are phoned in right now for this, for this Corona era. There's some people that some people are working hard and they're doing great, but the majority of this show is not <laughs> karaoke. Well, you know what though, with the karaoke bit, the girls worked hard on that. The women did because they're when you're given nothing, right? We're not gonna but go like, it. why not have <laughs> why not have a good storyline and match? Why not you know do something with Naomi? Where'd Lacey Evans push go? <laughs> Well, she turned heel. So. Oh, good, good thing, educator. Um, there's rumors of a women's mid card title. I know how much you love more titles than are necessary. There's Why? rumors of a women's. <laughs> I mean, you've got an NXT. You got an NXT UK. You've got a tag title that we can't figure out what to do with. So give it to the two that are like the main faces of the division, and then also have them brawl for the main singles titles on each show. Oh my god. Again, quantity over quality. There should be, and this is not a difficult, there should be one singles champion that goes to both shows for the guys. Then one mid-card title for Raw, one mid-card title for SmackDown. There should be one women's singles champion that goes to all the shows. Raw SmackDown. There should be one women's tag title that goes back and forth between the shows. And one men's tag title that goes back and forth. I saw a recent uh, picture poster of every WWE champion between Raw, SmackDown, NXT, NXT UK, and I honestly think there were like 25 championship titles in the picture it was ridiculous like did it look like a where's waldo it absolutely photo? <laughs> looked like a where's waldo picture and it, it's worse than when jim crockett had absorbed uh georgia championship wrestling and had uh, brought in all the the mid-atlantic titles and uh, and national champ it was just national championships it's just it's getting ridiculous that these belts are just a prop they're they, they have no meaning no, you're not a you're not you're not a fan of Bailey Trace straps. <sighs> Bailey Ghost straps. Just make it stop. No, no. What no. about Triple Banks? Triple Banks just needs to stop. No, which which show would you put the twenty four seven title on? Have that be a, a roaming title for every brand, including the UK brand and you know the NXT brands. I'm also I'm starting to struggle with just. Even the NXT, the fact that there are two men's singles titles, 
and I just don't. I, I feel like you're doing Steiner. I, just, I don't see the. I don't see the need for it. It's a quantity over quality. Make it stop. I feel like we know what your next commercial is going to oh. be. <laughs> Not a doubt. I gotta find. Why don't we give? I gotta find that picture. Give, I, I saw it like a month ago. I'll, I'll see if I can find it for when this oh, goes it's live. Crazy. They're gonna introduce the Bruce Hart Championship oh, just, just so that my head will just freaking explode. It's gonna happen. There's gonna be like a Calgary Championship with Bruce on the side plates. It'll be crazy. Um, is there any chance we could get a Tough Man title in our next match? Uh, well, yeah, that's one thing I do want to talk about here, uh, because we have uh, Doc Hendricks interviewing Butterbean, uh, Michael Cole then interviewing Sable with uh, Mark Marrow, which I thought was a great, um, great little heel work here by Marrow in this little interview. Um, and then, you know, we get the Marrow Butterbean video and then we go to Mark Marrow versus Butterbean in a tough man match. So what are the rules to a tough man match, guys? Because there's no explanation there is no rules there's no title card that shows you the rules so what do you guys think the rules are i i honestly i don't know what they're trying to do um maybe they were bringing butterbean in just to try to get mark marrow over with the newer version of his boxing gimmick um he certainly was struggling trying to figure out what the wild man mark marrow was and who what his character should be um, you know, he got himself over with the flamboyant Johnny B. Bad and WCW, and now we're just taking a huge pivot here and going in a different direction and utilizing his background with uh, Golden Gloves Boxing in New York State. Um, I, it, to me, it made sense to do a complete uh, overhaul on the character, given he was, you know, out with an injury, that knee injury he received, and it made sense. Um, just interesting in that they did this interaction with Butterbean, Eric Esch, I believe his name is, uh, doing this particular interaction, and they eventually would bring him in for a couple of other shots down the road. So my understanding is Butterbean did have a boxing match the night before on right. the undercard for boxing pay-per-view because of regulations and committees and athletics and you know all that, all that junk. He could not be in a boxing match the next day. Like, there has to be X amount of time in between boxing matches for your, quote, safety. He clearly wasn't going to be in a wrestling match too, either. So that's why they had to call it a tough man fight. Probably just made up these rules on the spot to just call it something. It's intended to do something for Mark Marrow. They also liked Butterbean. I guess WWF and Butterbean had interactions before, and they all got along and liked each other. Um, so just to give him more of a showcase, too. My big issue with it, and I don't know if Educator's going to break it down, you know, punch for punch or not, but seeing what Butterbean does in this match means that we didn't have to have him destroy Bart Gunn. Butterbean clearly could work a worked match. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Very capable of doing a worked match. I, I The one thing that I do appreciate from this match is that it, it, it kind of reminded me it was a callback to WrestleMania 2 with the Roddy Piper, mm -hmm. Mr. T. Yeah. 
and uh, being a worked match. And I liked the heel shenanigans that the Mar- Mark Marrow was doing with Piper in terms of like incorporating wrestling stuff uh, or where the ref isn't seeing it all or just doing it anyway, just to get away with it. But yeah, yeah, I mean, down the road when Butterbean comes back for WrestleMania 15 and just completely essentially annihilating Bart Gunn, there could have been a lot more that was done with that particular uh, storyline than just the one and done murdering of your um, brawl for all winner. So the match itself, we, we get the introductions uh, and the walkouts to the ring with the supposed trainers and managers and so on. Um, I love this particular entrance music. I think it goes great with the Mark Merrow character, uh, the, the rough rock entrance music here. Uh, round one with uh, in the uh, tough man competition, we had, uh, the only thing that was explained is four two-minute rounds. That's it. That's all that was essentially explained. And then we eventually get weird random stats about number of punches thrown, percent landed. I have no idea. Did either of you guys go back to actually count and see if any of those numbers were legit? legit? I truly believe they weren't. I think they were just made up on the spot kind of deal. Round one, we end up seeing Mark Merrow essentially starting the match, doing a lot of stalling. Uh, wrestling stalling where he would essentially kind of duck under the top rope and push his upper torso out of the ring to avoid having to get into the match. Uh, but eventually after his like second or third attempt, Butterbean gets frustrated and just completely like does a waylay right hand and knocks Marrow out of the ring. Uh, Marrow ends up recovering uh, to uh, get back into the ring and uh, Marrow punches uh, Butterbean after the bell had rung. Uh, and then we see all the corner men from both sides essentially running in to try to separate the two from the match breaking down even further. In the second round, uh, right as soon as the bell rings, Butterbean is still turned around facing his corner. I, I guess, help me out, because I, I never really followed Butterbean's career. Was he known to not use the stool and would just remain standing between rounds? Was that? I don't know if that was typically his thing. but So he's turned around. Uh, facing his corner, standing, the bell rings, and Marrow just charges the, across the ring, does a flying knee to his back in between his shoulder blades. We see in the in the actual in-between rounds, in the first round, they're doing a close-up, and you see one of Mark Marrow's corner man like, get a pair of scissors out and cut some tape wrapped around his wrist, and then Marrow ends up unwinding the tape and ends up using that as a choking tool uh, against Butterbean. Um, I thought it was weird, Marrow trying to rake the eyes with his boxing gloves, but at least they in the replay they showed that Marrow went out of his way and was somehow capable of trying to do a thumb into the eye uh, during uh, his second round with Butterbean. And then uh, after the bell, uh, Butterbean turns around to walk towards his corner, and Marrow charges again but throws a drop kick to the back of the head. Uh, very, very interesting dynamic. Such heel shenanigans on Mark Marrow's end. Round three, we got Butterbean charging uh, to the center of the ring uh, and to taunt Marrow that he's going to hit him hard. Uh, both men start basically wailing back and forth, and essentially it becomes like a tired man slugfest back and forth. Here we start to see the crowd beginning to turn on the match. You can hear individuals that are chanting, boring. You know, in the middle of the third round, um, Butterbean 
I think something went really weird because there's a timer on the screen and Butterbean like swings and knocks Marrow down and there's probably like 30 seconds on the on the timer left and maybe not even four or five seconds into the ref's count, like the regular ring bell goes off uh, and it wasn't uh, 30 seconds to save him whatsoever. So I just think it was uh, a goof up in production, not keeping track of time. In the fourth round, uh, Butterbean knocks down Mark Marrow. Uh, as Marrow gets starts to work his way to his feet, he's you know standing up, trying to stand up, but he's on his knees. He ends up doing a low blow to Butterbean and then smashes his corner stool over Butterbean's head and shoulders, kind of cause, or forcing the disqualification. And then it's just shenanigans after that, and Mark Marrow runs away and. Butterbean is standing in the ring victorious after his tough man victory by disqualification. If he didn't sit on the corner stool, I'm guessing it's because due to his size, he wouldn't want to look blown up. So if he stands, he ends up looking stronger, like he doesn't need the break. Right. Um, It's great heel work by Merrill. Like, it's, it's not a wrestling match, but it's an entertaining bit on the show. Um, my only thing that stood out is, did either of you notice Marrow's legs? Like, I know, uh, you know, it's, it's an upper body business. Legs look small. Really? Like, did not pick up on that? Legs that I did pick up on were Sable's legs in the outfit she was wearing, where she's wearing <laughs> a black robe similar to Marrow's that barely covered her, her cheeks, I think she did have a pair of white shorts on underneath, but we see the bottom ends of the cheeks slipping out. Uh, different look to the Sable character. I appreciated it a lot more than the latexy like bodysuit she was known to wear during the Wild Man days. Um, the match was just uh, a, a goofy way to try to get Mark Merrill over as a, a boxer, boxing heel. And you can see the, the tease of you know, they want to make her the big sex symbol for WWF and Marrow trying to prevent it and, you know, keep her covered and all. The, the interview he did earlier, I thought they were going for, like, a Randy Savage, Miss Elizabeth thing. Like, I'm the star. I don't, you know, she's not the star. It's about me and all. But the Marrow and Sable one came across as abusive. Right. Whereas Savage and Liz came across protective. One question I do have to ask. So, Matt, I know you said you didn't really follow Butterbean's career. Uh, Kevin, did you? No, I mean, I remember when FX had, like, uh, their Tough Man show at night, like, 10 at night. They had, like, some hour-long Tough Man show that he would on a few times. But it was a thing I might watch one match flipping through, but I never got, like, into it. Did Butterbean have a UFC match or a Strike Force match or a Bellator match? And I I want to think that he had an MMA match, like for one of the more better known promotions, not necessarily top end like a Strike Force UFC. But I remember he was just super super big, and I think he got like as soon as he got taken down, there was just absolutely nothing he could do, and he got he did right. he did a he lot did, of MMA. He did Pride. Okay, Pride. Okay. Um, twenty eight MMA matches, seventeen wins, ten losses, one draw. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, K1 and Pride. The only reason I, I bring it up was, I, I mean, he was mostly, I mean, the tough man wasn't boxing. It was a, a separate thing, right? Yeah. Um, 
So I'm just wondering in a shoot fight, if Merrow being a Golden Gloves winner, I'm not saying he's going to knock out Butterbean, but I wonder if he could outpoint him in a match. He, he does have a professional boxing record as well, though. Like, it's not tough man. He has a, he has a kickboxing record, too. <laughs> Can you imagine him kicking? No. So his his boxing record is twenty one or sorry ninety one boxing matches seventy seven wins ten losses four draws and apparently he started boxing in ninety four it's crazy he did lose to Larry Holmes <laughs> just kind of it's just an odd career because I wasn't really into combat sports obviously like you know UFC I think popularized a lot of it for you know when we were growing up kind of that age of hitting college and then UFC and the ultimate fighter and yada, 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 all that sort of stuff, you know, we hit it at the right time. So, um, butterbean kind of was a little before that, obviously just, it's just a, it's a weird, um, you know, weird thing, but you know, uh, I know at the retro, uh, store, I mean, do you have the tough man game for the Sega Genesis? Uh, <laughs> not, not off the top of my head in our Sega Genesis wall, we got lots of a few Master System games, but a decent chunk of Genesis and Tough Man doesn't stand out. All right, so uh, why don't we move on from the Tough Man competition? To talk about the poem reading. Uh, oh. We have Luna Vashon <laughs> walking out the artist formerly known poem, as Goldust. Well, they kept saying poem. It's amusing yeah. that Goldust put together. Yeah. Um, what did you guys think of the segment and? Uh, I mean, was this just a raw segment? What What is going on here? This is just Vince Russo all over this. Mr. Mr. Hellions, what, what are your thoughts? Let's get your initial thoughts, Hellions. All right. Um, <laughs> God. I give a lot of credit to Dustin for just being willing to go as far as he could with the Goldust angle and the character. My guess is maybe this was a plan for Marlena leaves goes with Brian Pillman, which obviously that storyline couldn't continue. Goldust snaps and becomes this warped character. And Luna is also kind of kinky and weird as well. I also guess now to continue with the music references today, I don't know if either of you are familiar with Judas Priest. Okay, so Rob Helford, who's the lead singer of Judas Priest, is gay. He's an out gay man right now, but he wasn't when they started. So he was like, well, I kind of want the world to know I'm gay, but I don't really want to say, let me go to an S&M clothing store, buy a bunch of leather and studs and chains and all this stuff, and wear on stage. And instead of like, oh, obviously he's gay. Look at what he's wearing. All the metalheads were like, that's awesome. I want to wear it too. Right. And he created the, the, the image of heavy metal from it. I'm wondering if Goldust and Luna were like, hey, here's a weird store in this town. Let's just go there and buy a bunch of crazy stuff and that'll be a ring gear. What is the absolute weirdest stuff that we can get and see what yep, we can try to get away with uh, on the pay-per-view tonight? Absolutely. Do you have it in bright colors too? We'll take two. You know? <laughs> like, And the, the funny thing is, because we talked about how they use Sunny and, and you know how they're using Sable and stuff, Luna cleaned up, could clean up very well. But that wasn't her character. She had to be all crazy and weird and all. But she comes out and you're like, whoa, where'd that come from in this in this gear? Yeah. Yeah, I think um, Judas Priest is, a, is related to Damien Priest. Oh, God. No. 
I'm trying to think. <laughs> I'm trying to think of like any listeners I'm a, that I know well, and if they're into metal, and I I, I think we won't get ladders for that comparison. <laughs> if your listeners are into metal, they're at the wrong podcast. They should go to your metal podcast. I'm gonna play metal songs every week. Matt will edit them in. To get your reactions. You're putting. You're making us both listen to metal songs. We'll we'll rank. Do you have a name for the podcast yet? Not yet. I'll think of one. <laughs> All right. I'm going to call it Heavy Metal. Heavy Metal. <laughs> so uh, we have Michael Cole interviewing uh, LOD. Um, what did you guys think of this promo? Well, whenever you got that booger that's up in your nose, and you dig. And that nail of yours is just too short to get in there. But you just dig and dig. And when you get it, then you roll it all up. And you flick it. Oh, what a bugger. What was that? I honestly do not know. You know what that was? (laughs) That was Wrestling Observer's 1997 promo of the year. You watched... You watched this pay-per-view today. How long were you working on that? <laughs> oh, man. Let me tell you. I just, it just great. Like, Animal started the promo. It was the normal Legion of Doom. We're coming after you. We're here to kick your butt. We're going to avenge our title loss. And, man, Hawk must have been on some happy sauce that night to pull that out. The Coke that day must have been really, really, really fine. I have no idea. I want you to pull that as a commercial. (laughs) Just the educator as Hawk. Um, The one thing I do want to say about the promo is he does refer to Billy Gunn as Mr. Ass. Yes. And was this one of the first times when they were referring to him? Because he was badass Billy Gunn was the gimmick. Right, that they they would start calling him Mister Ass, and of course he's had that as ochre. I think he was trying to make fun of them with it because he said Mister Dog and Mister Ass. I think he's trying to make fun of it, and someone, right. either Billy Gunn, Road Dog, Vince Russo, whoever was like, run with it. That's great. Yeah, because the only reason I bring it up is in our next match, which is LOD versus Road Dog and uh, Billy Gunn, is Road Dog is calling him Mister Ass now throughout the whole thing, and I think he was trying to rib him. Was the way that I that I kind of took it was the promo happened. It, it kind of came off that way, yeah. So, so what did you guys think of this booger match? <laughs> <laughs> I, I it, it, so the New Age Outlaws team is still in their infancy. They're still trying to figure out, you know, how they are. Um, that we're so used to seeing the evolution of Brian James, uh, Double J, Jesse James, whatever. Um, and it, it is on the mic in the intro, the typical intro. So it's weird to hear the, oh, you didn't know, you better call somebody that's not in the higher cadence that we had become accustomed to, especially when they were a part of the DX run. Um, lots of stalling at the start of the match where, you know, the New Age Outlaws would work their way to the ring and then LOD would come out after them. So they ran to the back and pretended they had to do some extra stretching and calisthenics to get ready. They come to the ring, but then LOD would chase them back to the point where you finally got a bunch of the agents in the back to essentially force walk them down to the ring. And in the process of being forced down, LOD attacks them and they start fighting the match. Um... The bell rings for the match, 
And then it, the as in the process of uh, the New Age Outlaws taking their gear off, um, Animal grabs one of the title belts and swings it over uh, the Road Dog's back, right in front of the referee. But the referee didn't call for a disqualification, so no consistent continuity in terms of you know enforcing the basic rules. Um, I was impressed towards the beginning of the match. Hawk doing a, a rude awakening like neck breaker onto the road dog. Um, Hawk with a double clothesline from the apron to the floor on both of the members of the New Age Outlaws. Um, eventually, Animal got tagged in and he catches the road dog trying to do, who's trying to do a leapfrog over Animal, but he uh, Animal catches him for a power bomb. And goes for the pin, and the pin is broken up by Billy Gunn at a two count. New Age Outlaws continue to stall and pretend that they're essentially going to walk out of the match and take a count out loss for essentially LOD to chase them down yet again and try to grab them. As they brawl back to the ring, um, weird how a styrofoam cooler essentially does a run-in with drinks <laughs> and uh road dog essentially uses that styrofoam cooler to clock hawk in the back of the shoulders uh, right around the same time that apparently in the i guess the camera didn't show it too well but billy gunn dropped to his knees and did a low blow from the front uh so knocking hawk down after being hit with the cooler and the low blow uh road dog hits a drop kick on the hawk and then we see uh, a little miniature uh, inchworm, a couple of uh, rolls towards the pin, and we only get a, a cover for a two count. Um, I, I love JR's basic one-liner explanation of how the New Age outlaws, how they work as a team, where he says, and I quote, one man distracts while the other man cheats. And that's essentially what their whole shtick was in the first place, being the cowardly, almost chick-like heels uh, trying to, you know, uh, get themselves over. Uh, Billy Gunn drops a pretty hard knee on Hawk's forehead. And I think this was a post-network edit. There was a bleep out of Hawk, I think, swearing because yep. of the stiff landing uh, from Billy Gunn. So I don't know if that was an accident. I don't know if that was a Billy Gunn shoot for a receipt earlier in the match based on something else. But, you know, the fact that it had to be blurted out means it must have been super obvious on the original broadcast. Uh, we eventually get Animal with a hot tag to start clearing house. He clotheslines both members of the New Age Outlaws. He shoots Road Dog into the ropes and does his scoop power slam. Um, he ends up doing a shoulder block uh, onto each member of the New Age Outlaws, a shoulder tackle essentially. LOD set up the Road Dog for the Doomsday device. And in the background where the camera is, we see Henry Godwin running down to the ring uh, to interfere. He has his bucket with him. Interesting, it was only Henry Godwin and not both of the Godwins doing a run-in. Uh, but Henry Godwin comes in with the bucket, and he essentially swings the bucket at Animal. Um, but then Hawk still dives off the rope for the clothesline, but... Goes to clothesline Henry Godwin to knock Godwin out of the ring. But then in the process of him falling out of the ring, the bucket ends up still in the ring. Hawk stands up, picks up the bucket, starts swinging at both of the New Age Outlaws. And eventually the referee sees Hawk hitting one of the members of the Outlaws with the bucket, calls for the DQ finish. And there it is. The New Age Outlaws retain over the Legion of Doom. You know, it's good you brought up... Um what they said about the style of New Age Outlaws, because it absolutely seems like 
you're not good enough to be another tag team here, but you're lucky enough to be. Exactly. Yeah. And I, I, I was trying to think of a better way to word it because it's not that they don't have faith in them, you know, powers that be inside WWF. We got enough faith to put the titles on you and see where it goes. But also the outlaws kept like, okay, let's try it. Okay, let's run with this Mr. Ass thing. Let's do this. Let's do that. Let's push it a little further. Okay, what's the reaction there? Let's put, let's try this. Oh, we're making money. Let's try Let's push it a little further now too because we can get away with more because we're making so much money. I think the best modern example is when the New Day started and they're like, let's try this this week. Okay, that worked. Let's try this. Let's push a little farther. Let's do a little more and just keep updating the, the product here. And it's just... I mean, overall, it's a nothing match. It's, you know, it's not going to rank high on any, you know, star list or anything. It serves its purpose. You know, oh, my gosh, I can't believe the Outlaws still have the titles. How lucky are they? You know, they'll cheat to win and all, and it gets them over a little more. Yeah, another thing, too, that I thought was interesting was how they kept just saying LOD is OLD, you know, old, and they're playing into the, the age. Yeah. Right. Um, let's go. Uh, Hawk is 40 and Animal's 37. <laughs> Are you kidding me? That's crazy yeah. to think that. Wow. Yeah. I didn't realize they were still kind of that young. Compared to Billy Gunn, who is 34 at the time. Jeez. Oh, I mean, Road Dog was 28, so you could see yeah. that. But, um, yeah, I just thought it was fascinating. I, I had to check, and it, it's always interesting when they're trying to usher out the old wave, but that just kind of goes to show you how popular the Road Warriors were because they'd been around forever at that point. It was literally like they started rising. Literally, they were 20, 21 years old where they started to make a name for themselves and become more and more popular in the early 80s. It's crazy. Yeah. So um, speaking of uh, an old versus young, let's go into (laughs) uh, the Sergeant Slaughter versus Triple H boot camp. Let's just go through this this whole thing. Um, So there's a Sergeant Slaughter video where. He's talking about Pearl Harbor because this does fall on Pearl Harbor Day. Yeah, I that I don't know. It didn't hit for me. This video did not. Uh, you, you, mean, Cole, you mean Sergeant Slaughter saying that his match against Triple H will also live in infamy, much like Pearl Harbor. Oh. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, we have Michael Cole, um, you know, interviewing Triple H in China. Um, talking about, you know, Slaughter's wife needs to smoke the peace pipe, <laughs> pointing to his crotch. I mean, just perfect DX stuff. You have Jim Cornette interviewing Sergeant Slaughter. Um, and then we get into the boot camp match, which is Triple H uh, versus Slaughter. One thing that I did think was, was a little foreshadowing is they do bring up the age difference here as well. Um, you know, old man. Um, how old do you guys think Slaughter is at this point, too? 51, 52. Well, I think he was like 45 or so. Yeah, he is only, uh, let me just double check this really quick. Um, Sergeant Slaughter at this point was 49. Okay. So he's younger than Chris Jericho at this point. Uh, current Chris Jericho, as weird as that right. sounds. Chris Jericho in 97. Yeah, but I think it's, I think it's, yeah, that would be really weird. Um, he's got Benjamin Button syndrome. I think it's just very interesting how they put these kind of two angles back to back, the young versus the old. And then, of course, the New Age Outlaws would join DX. Yeah, so um, the other thing, too, when we're talking about age and stuff like this was I aged about seven years during this match. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, is this not the most quintessential Triple H match? Ugh. Oh, wow. 
Because in all honesty, Triple H has that slow, methodical, prodding yeah. style. Right. Work your and, opponent down, build up to something at that. Yeah. Right. It, and this is just pure. I could see like Triple H thinking to himself, oh, these old guys are going to love this. Yeah. <laughs> he should have done this in St. Louis. <laughs> the, the video package at the beginning, trying to hype Sergeant Slaughter's history and getting the Cobra Clutch maneuver over as a huge, like, uh, maniacal finisher. Um, I, I, I wasn't too familiar with Sergeant Slaughter's initial run in the WWF in the early 80s. When he ended up coming back in 1991 uh, for uh, his first, uh, that second run, and eventually feuded with Hulk Hogan and then turned face. I, I mean, it makes sense why he did different maneuvers. He didn't use the Cobra Clutch because you had the million dollar man, Ted DiBiase, doing his version. It's the million dollar dream. So you can't have two guys doing the same finish. Can't have that. No, no way. Unless, you know, working for different companies, I guess. Um, but they tried to sell that Cobra Clutch as being like a maniacal maneuver and the piece de resistance to finish everything and so on. So, um, interesting note. Were you guys paying attention to the ring announcer and Triple H being announced to the ring? Do you remember, do you know how much supposedly Triple H was billed at in terms of weight? 246 pounds. When have you ever seen Triple H at 246 pounds? And here is where he's actually he's starting to get some serious bulk and mass. His arms are starting to get much, much bigger. Uh, not the crazy psycho bodybuilding look that we saw him when he was feuding with Scott Steiner or right after he re, you know returned from his quad tear. But Triple H is starting to make significant advances in mass gaining. Um, and 246 is like, wow, no, he's a lot heavier than that. Um, Sergeant Slaughter coming to the ring. Why are they playing the Patriots music who was just wrestling for the company probably a month prior and just was injured? It just, it seems it's the weird play on music that you're rolling over a new, uh, to an existing established character who's been on TV a lot and you're just giving him his music to someone else. I don't know if it had been completely made aware that Patriot was not coming back at this point, or if he was just out with that bicep injury. I just, I thought it was weird that he was using the Patriots music who then in turn ended up becoming Kurt Angle's music a couple of years later. Um, so interesting in the ring introductions, the entrances, uh, just those pieces of information. So the boot camp match, it wasn't really well explained as to what it is. Essentially, by today's standards, it's a hardcore match, right? Yeah. The the referee being on the outside of the ring the entire time just seemed foolish because anytime there was a pin count attempt, it just it seemed to take forever for the ref to come in to try to make the count and then just to awkwardly take off and run back out of the ring. I mean, I guess they're just still trying to figure out how to do this. I think the referee should have just basically been in the ring and just was in a corner so that it would have been just much quicker for him to do a, a count for a uh, pinfall attempt or a submission. Um, at the beginning of the match, I don't know what you call that tool that Sergeant Slaughter carried to the ring, but he ended up using it like a whip or a club and started beating down Triple H at the start of the match. 
Uh, Sarge tosses Triple H over the top rope onto the floor and then throws Triple H into the ring steps. Sarge picks up Triple H and basically does a variation of the snake eyes maneuver and essentially drops Triple H throat first over the rail. Um, and then what was weird is Sarge tra- Sergeant Slaughter tries for a pinfall attempt on the floor and it was like they didn't communicate, are we doing balls count anywhere or not? Because the ref wasn't sure to count, not to count. It was just weird. Uh, so eventually Sarge throws uh, Triple H back into the ring and then he removes his belt to use his belt that was holding up his pants to as a weapon to beat Sergeant Sl- or to beat Triple H. I really wish he wouldn't have done that because there were so many times I was distracted by Sergeant Slaughter trying to pull up his pants from falling down throughout the match. And it just took away from, you know, the storytelling, the match, the, the offense that he was doing. Oh, punch, punch, hike up the pants, punch, punch, hike up the, you know, it was just, it was just very distracting. Um, so, uh, again, with the pinfall attempts where the refs got to run in and leave, it just was awkward timing. It was distracting. It took away from the match. Um, Triple H does an Irish whip into the corner onto Slaughter, and Sergeant Slaughter takes his well-known over-the-top rope corner bump onto the floor, and it looked he looked like he hit pretty hard on his shoulder as he landed to the floor itself. Um, I, then the the spot that I don't know if it was a shoot or an accident. But Triple H follows and has a fist fight with a 110-pound timekeeper. And that timekeeper was holding on to that ring bell if his life depended on it. And like Triple H trying to wrestle that bell away from the timekeeper to the point where Triple H kind of fell backwards and like landed butt first seated on the steps. And you could tell he was visibly upset. So when he kind of like wrestled the timekeeper bell back and forth, he pushed that timekeeper, that bell so hard into that guy's face you heard that thud and that timekeeper i i think was legit knocked out in fact you see throughout the match for the next couple of minutes after that thud into the face you see a different referee it wasn't jack doan creeping his way across the hard camera to go check and then we see a couple more agents that eventually come down i really think that timekeeper was legit knocked out and it was a crazy crazy um, spot in the match. We see uh, Tony Tony Chimmel actually also uh, make an appearance on screen and is over there and and is a part of the whole uh, deal of trying to get the the timekeeper out. Um, eventually, Slaughter recovers and uh, gets back in the ring. And after uh, Triple H had got received a chain from China. And he wrapped it around his fist a few times and punched Slaughter in the head with it. Eventually, Slaughter recovers. Uh, does a spot where he knocks Triple H down. He tries to climb to the top rope, uh, and Sarge wasn't really known for coming off of the top rope, so it was awkward. Uh, Triple H was able to catch him in time and slam him off the top rope, uh, essentially for uh, only a two count, because, again, it took time for the referee to get into the into the ring and make the count. Um, and we see some wear-down holds that Triple H uses. Eventually, at one point, a pretty long sleeper onto Sergeant Slaughter. And then eventually Sarge was able to reverse that sleeper into the Cobra Clutch. And then here's where the match, to me, started to get a little bit more interesting. Um, So Triple H is in the Cobra Clutch. China enters the ring to try to break up the uh, maneuver. 
Uh, the ref kind of gets in the way kind of deal to try to stop China from interfering, but China just decides to knock the ref out and throws a big arm and knocks down the ref. Uh, China grabs uh, and eventually breaks up the, the hold and knocks down um, Sergeant Slaughter. China ends up grabbing a chair and goes to essentially hit Slaughter with the chair uh, but Sarge goes to his old bag of tricks and digs out some powder that he must have had and bit through a big old plume of powder into China's face and it hit her square right in the face. It was great. Uh, so obviously she's blinded and she ends up rolling out of the ring. We end up getting Sergeant Slaughter re- able to recover from China's interference and manages to get the Cobra Clutch again on Triple H and it took the ref f- time for eventually to recover and we see the hand go down once. We go see Triple H's hand go down a second time. And in the background, China is slowly crawling into the ring. She's still selling the powder in the eyes. But as soon as that hand is raised up for a third time, all of a sudden, like she goes into Superman recovery mode, can now suddenly see and just jets across that ring for a field goal punt between Sarge's legs, kicks him in the groin, and man, he just drops. Apparently, the ref didn't see it, so couldn't call for a DQ, even though essentially it was a no-DQ match anyway. Um, After the punt, we see Triple H get a hold of the chair, and he lays the chair down towards the corner of the ring, sets up Slaughter for the pedigree, hits the pedigree on Sergeant Slaughter, and Slaughter's head seemed to hit that chair pretty hard in that pedigree. Uh, Triple H struggles rolling Sergeant Slaughter over, but eventually does so, and he gets the 1-2-3 pin. And pretty good ca- actual crowd pop for that pinning, for that for that pinning finish to that match. I I think the match was as good as it was going to be, without a doubt. You, you know, um, so uh, Sarge was it a baton he was carrying to the ring? Yeah, okay, that I I was trying to blank on the word baton. That would I would say that would be yeah. the best way to describe that. I, I wanted to call it a whip. I'm like, no, that's not right. It, yeah, um, that's what I refer to it as. Sarge coming out to Patriots music is weird because Sarge had music. When he, he did, did his face turn, he had music. And even as a commissioner, didn't he have entrance music? I believe he did. Some, you know, so like, why is he coming out to it? It's just weird. Um, China, I, I like the end. For as overbooked as it was, I actually really like the end of Triple H might be down, but trying to save him at the last moment and all. Um, her getting the the powder to the eye for her being brand new to wrestling. I think she did very well, you know, overall, I think she did very well selling it, moving around, getting the spot set up. If we, at the end of the show, ranked the hardest nut shots in the In Your House series, this China one to Sarge, oh my God, you can hear it. It won't even be on an all-time list. I was watching it going, there's no way. There's no way that sound just happened. Let me see. Oh, my God, that sound just happened. That's yeah. awful. It feels so bad for him. Um, Sarge bumps his ass off in he, this. And for, for his age and for as out of shape as he was, he he was working hard. It is, it, it is not a five-star match. No. no. There is stuff where you're like, why are we watching this on pay-per-view, especially during the Monday night air? war why is this going on but that is not a fault at all sarge did great for for his age for you know what he could do and all i don't think he had anything to be embarrassed about for the match um 
question about for the referee now Sarge has done a lot of the boot camp matches unfortunately it's just not like ones I'm very familiar with I know there's like MSG ones in Boston Gardens and stuff and I'm sure they're on the network as like a hidden gem or whatever but I would say for the referee being on the outside it almost makes it look like you need to incapacitate your opponent for even longer than three count because you got a couple extra seconds that the ref has to come in so it almost looks like you have to beat them even worse than you would in a regular match because you need those couple extra seconds that they're down as well. Right. I don't know if they, I don't know if that's a psychology thing that's been played around at some point. It's just a theory, and I know I, uh, there's someone listening that's like, "You got to watch those matches." I know there's a hundred other things we got to watch too. <laughs> I liked it for what it was. It wasn't, you know, for what it was. I accept it, and I'm okay with it. It was a way to again get Triple H over. As, you know, not necessarily, um, I, I, I struggle with saying the number two guy in DX, but certainly getting him down as an established member of the heel roster and getting a win over the one of the main authority figures on TV. So, well, I mean, how about this? I'll say at this time, Triple H was not seen as a future world champion. At, at that time, I would say that I would agree with that. Yes. Yeah, so why don't we take a uh, quick little break, and we'll be back. Promotional consideration paid for by the following. Coming soon to the Retro Network and the House Show Podcast. Three men are on a highway to hell, and the person driving is blind. That's because the mass library is in control, and, and he presents heavy metal. A metalhead's guide to con- therapy. Join the mass library as he hails Satan and bangs his head while the educator of excellence and Maddie treats cry for their mommies. Along the way, they stop to play Pokemon Go, but they're going to catch only the evil ones. So put on your leather and your spikes because it's time to shred some cords and throw up those devil horns because heavy metal is coming to a podcast channel in hell. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is the educator of excellence from the House Show podcast. He's here to educate you. And with the uncertainty this upcoming fall as to whether or not schools will be back into session, no one really knows. Whether it be actually back in classes with direct instruction, girl, you gotta find, you better back the class up. Whether it's an actual hybrid approach of perhaps half days with smaller class sizes, or maybe complete virtual at home instruction, digital straight A's. Here at the House Show Podcast, there will always be the educator of excellence dropping some knowledge every Thursday to keep you in line with New York State graduation requirements. Show off that big, fat, and meaty knowledge. Whether it be a little living environment and learning about biology and about your DNA and how your genetic instructions help your body produce proteins, proteins that directly influence how your body expresses traits. Mix that knowledge with some protein, get a protein shake. Whether it be in chemistry and learning about oxidation and reduction reactions. Ooh, he's a chemist. 
or even if it's about earth science and learning about tides and the pull of the moon and gravitational forces. Even if it's about driver education and traffic safety, learning how to parallel park your car and do that three-point turn. Learn how to back the trunk There always will be some knowledge being dropped every Thursday. But the most important knowledge being dropped on Thursday is your retro wrestling history every Thursday in the House Show Podcast. Show off So here we are, the house show with our with our debut after the commercial break or re-debut, if you will. I don't know. We're the Jeff Jarrett podcast. Let's go, baby. All right. So we got Michael Cole with Jeff Jarrett. And like I said, they're talking about Jeff Jarrett's in-ring debut. What is going on in this promo educator? I, I really don't understand. I don't know if it's just a revisionist theory and we're going to pretend that Jarrett was never in the WWE or WWF at the time pretend that he didn't do the ain't I great the uh the country music singer the world's greatest singer the world's greatest entertainer uh you know there are pieces to that original version of the gimmick he's doing the double finger Fargo strut across the middle of the ring you know, I mean, there's things that he's kind of carrying over. He He's attempting to visually hit the reset button. His gear and his entrance is very, very different. Very different music that he's coming out to. But I just, I don't understand that Michael Cole refers to this as his debut. Uh, eventually, during the match, both Jerry Lawler and uh, JR are referring to this as a debut but then after the match is over, they kind of double back, and then they decide to say Jarrett returns to the WWF um, with this particular victory. So I- I'm not sure if they're just trying to erase from everyone's mind that he abruptly left, um, and then as a result, uh, and then his run that he had with the other company, with WCW, and then that didn't really work, or that finished up. I don't know if it, he left abruptly there, but came back. It was just uh, interesting. I had a chance to listen to um, uh, something to wrestle with podcast, and he recently, Bruce Pritchard, they just did a show uh, very recently on uh, the In Your House 2 pay-per-view, and we had actually done our version of it, but certainly a much bigger insider view, and they talked about how, like nobody knew what was going on until it literally that night that it happened. And I guess, you know, plans that were thought to be in play for Jarrett and the WWF changed when essentially um, it was determined that, you know, Vince McMahon wasn't going to be going to jail due to the steroid trial that Jerry Jarrett really wasn't going to have a bigger role in the company if McMahon was going away. And um, so basically some information that, you know, Jarrett had for his bigger plans wasn't going to go to fruition. And, you know, at the time, Jarrett was only like 
27, 28 years old when that, that In Your House 2 took place. When he returned back to the WWF for this pay-per-view, he had just recently turned 30. So he's still relatively young uh, in the grand scheme of things in terms of a professional wrestler having about 12 years experience. So who knows? They're just trying to essentially re uh, reimagine his uh, time in the WWF. Well, that, that's what I was wondering for this repackaging. We have the debut of Mankind, the debut of Dude Love, and the debut of Cactus Jack in WWF as three separate dates. So maybe this is the debut of the real Jeff Jarrett, not Double J, not the greatest singer, greatest musician, greatest entertainer. This is just the real Jeff Jarrett, the wrestler, as if it's a whole new character, even though it's a character with the same name. Yeah, he's also borrowing some of that re- the world's greatest wrestler you know, he, he's saying the same lines that he said before he left, too. So, um, But, of course, Double J, Jeff Jarrett is taking on The Undertaker. Um, and actually, this was a good follow-up to Bad Blood where we had the debut of Kane. Um, we do get Kane showing up again. Um, so, The Educator, why don't you break down this? Uh, this really was just a... I mean, it's a nothing match, but it leads to more of the Kane saga and adds some intrigue to, you know, how they were booking it. It's unique in that that Jarrett's coming back and he's working with Jeff Jarrett. And there have been many stories going around that, you know, Jeff Jarrett never got his break uh, with the WWF to be one of the top guys, to be one of the main inventors. In fact, that he got essentially snubbed with working for with Steve Austin because Steve Austin just didn't see the value in working with him or, or anything like that. But, you know, I, I completely forgot about this match with the undertaker. So he is working with one of the big top faces in the company, but this match wasn't a, a matter of him getting a, a match with the undertaker. It was more of continuing the storyline with the Kane saga that we had talked about with bad blood. So we essentially see uh taker, uh, working Jarrett's left arm and shoulder near the start of the match. And eventually that leads to the old school climb the top rope, the big clubbing forearm over the back uh, maneuver that we've, that are known for Undertaker, that Undertaker is known for, for walking the ropes. Um, Taker with his, I, I love the th- callback to uh, a previous component of the character where Undertaker has got his opponent in the corner and he does the big choke goozle and the referee's counting one, two, three, four, and Taker lets go and immediately turns around and starts charging to scare off the referee. And in fact, Tim White like was scared away and out of the ring. So I love that callback to his original version of his character and doing that. Um, eventually Jeff Jarrett does a little bit of, uh, has some recovery, um, and does a chop block to Undertaker and starts working Taker's left leg and left knee. Um, eventually Taker does recover, uh, and throws Jarrett into the ropes and does a big boot and then runs the ropes and does the big leg drop as if, you know, he's doing a particular other brother's version of a, you know, move set, uh, gets a two count for that. 
And then pretty much right after that two count, we get the lights completely out and it's black and the crowd is like all hyped up because they know what's coming. We hear the music play. We see the big fire explosion and we see Kane and Paul Bearer running, uh, not running, uh, doing their entrance to the ring. Uh, so Jarrett's knocked down. Undertaker is in the middle of the ring, just staring, watching on Kane uh, come to the ring. And eventually Kane enters the ring. And Jeff Jarrett's basically playing it off like, oh, thank goodness, you're here to save me. You know, he's like poking uh, Kane in the corner, you know, waving to him, go get him, go get your brother. And essentially, Kane took offense to that and turns to towards Jarrett and essentially does a choke slam onto Jarrett. So, of course, since that's going on in the middle of the match, all that means the Undertaker, since he's being assisted, uh, must be he he's, needs to be disqualified. So the referee calls for disqualification on Taker because Kane attacked his opponent, Jeff Jarrett. So then they encourage it there. There's a stare down between the Undertaker and Kane. Uh, JR is really commenting on how much taller Kane is compared to Undertaker. I don't know if maybe Kane had lifts in his boots, but I mean, there was a very sizable difference between the two. Um, but the JR is continuing. The Undertaker says he will not fight his brother. He will not attack his brother. Kane does a big old wind up and slaps Undertaker across the face. Undertaker essentially refuses to retaliate. So Kane says, all right, if you're not going to retaliate, then he just lifts his arm up in the air and does the big pyro arm drop and the, pyro explosion and then his music goes off and he walks out of the ring and there we are that the match is over and uh uh, you know jeff jarrett has a disqualification victory so post-match after kane walks out uh jeff jarrett recovers from uh the choke slam from kane and ends up attacking undertaker attacks him in the knee knocks undertaker down and attempts to do the figure four leg lock. And as he is about to step over and drop down for the pressure on the ankle, Undertaker grabs him by the throat and is able to stand up, does a big choke slam on Jeff Jarrett to a big pop from the crowd. And uh, Undertaker walks out with his music. And then we get a third recovery from Jeff Jarrett, where then Howard Finkel comes on and your winner by disqualification, Jeff Jarrett. And he's Jeff Jarrett's telling the referee, grab his wrist to raise his hands in the air to celebrate. And then JR again decides to go well in the record book. It will now read that Jeff Jarrett returned to the WWF with a, and defeated the undertaker. So it's weird that at the beginning of the match, it's his debut. And then JR contradicts that and says, and it's not a debut. It's a, return to the WWF. Um, the whole purpose was, again, to essentially further the storyline with Kane and Undertaker. I'm not sure what they were trying to figure out with Jeff Jarrett in terms of his new look, his new gear, you know, fresh coat of paint kind of deal on Jeff Jarrett. Maybe it'll stick. This is, you know, months before he ends up partnering up with Tennessee Lee and, and does, again, going back to the whole uh, entertainer gimmick itself. So it was what it was. That's all I can say. It's not a match. It's set up for other things. It's set up for Undertaker Kane. I will say Jarrett does well by hanging with Undertaker, because it's not a complete squash match or anything. By hanging, he looks like he belongs in a world title picture or intercontinental. He doesn't look like a jobber on his comeback. By the ending and him demanding to be declared the winner, 
it gets him over as a heel. They'll take a win by any means. I, I like what it's doing, but it's not a match. Here's my tangent, though. Okay? I'm going to change one thing. But I want to get there first. So let's say everything for Jarrett continues as it is. He brings in Deborah McMichael. She ends up going with Austin. Jarrett's not going to be in the world title picture. He still has his feud with China. He holds up WWE for more money the day of the pay-per-view because he's going to lose the IC belt to China. He leaves. He goes to WCW. WCW closes down. Vince buys them. He doesn't have a job because he can't go back to WWE. So he forms TNA. Okay. Let's say he makes a phone call when he's forming TNA. Because the one thing I'm going to change is if Owen Hart is still alive, does he follow his former tag team partner to TNA? Because, hey, you're older. You would work one day a week. You would be, I'll put the NWA world title on you. You can have great matches with all these young guys. You could be a trainer. You could be a leader. And I need you as a name to get my fledgling company noticed. Would Owen go? in this fantasy scenario. Everything else the same. I could see it potentially happening. I mean, it's crazy to think that this is December of 1997. And so we're about, you know, unfortunately about 18 months away from the uh, -the over-the-edge accident in Owen Hart's life uh, coming to a very, very early end. Uh, But Owen Hart and and Jeff Jarrett became really, really close in this particular run of the WWF. I I could honestly see that as a potential opportunity. But who knows, had the accident, I I can't remember how much time left he had on his contract. You know, um, I know he re-signed right around the time of the screw job, right? I can't remember if it was just before or just after or re- renegotiated a deal. Uh, it would be interesting to see if, if this, if the accident had not happened, would have this been Owen Hart's last contract with the WWF and would he have retired or, you know, could he perhaps, if it was, could he have been lured out of retirement and in this scenario, you said working with Jarrett in the new company of TNA. Yeah, I mean, I had there, there's there's certainly like TNA didn't form, you know, until years later. There's no conversation. There's no, you know, oh, I found something. It was just as I was watching it, I'm like, I wonder what could have been different. Right, you know, it just popped in my head, and I, I could see a world in which he's like, that sounds like a good schedule. I want to take care of my kids. How much you're paying me? That sounds fine. We can do that. And I could see a world where he's like, well, no, I stayed with WWE after they screwed over my brother. Why am I going to go somewhere else now? Or maybe just like, I'm out. I'm done. I'm retired. I'm not going back. All right. So uh, why don't we go to the Milton Bradley section of the uh, of the arena and hang out with Mark Henry? Um, <laughs> Of course, Milton Bradley, karate fighters, once again. They're really pushing these karate they're, fighters. They're I think they want. Pushing the blimp, too. I love the but uh, Let's not give Mark Henry any bad names, okay? Oh, jeez. So this is Mark Henry's second appearance on your house pay-per-view. This is just, you know, they're going up and bringing him into the area to, I don't know what they're doing. What are they doing with that? What is going He's on? He's with there? the peeps. He's with the posse. He's with the Milton Bradley folks hanging out with the young man next to him. 
Didn't know what his name was, so he couldn't announce it on camera. I mean, he, he's got his long-term deal. He can't work. He, they eventually send him. I don't know if he was there at this point or not. They eventually send him up to Stu Hart to just learn something. And it still took him like five, six more years for it to all click. They hate, then he had runs at Ohio Valley to lose weight. How do you think he would have done in the NXT system? Better. Better, because it would have been more focused, more concentrated, he, and he'd be living where he's working to apply his craft. Yeah. He, he would have been a monster, and he would have been brought up main roster with like so, so much of a push and a buzz behind him and everything. But they could have taken their time to get him there. Uh, I thought he was out there to scout the NOD, so... That's what I would have waited for. I was waiting for it. I was waiting for something to be said, like a little hint, and there, nothing. Um, so we followed that up with, uh, so I got really excited when I saw Rock versus Austin uh, on the lineup for the show. Uh, we get the Rock versus Stone Cold Steve Austin video. This is probably my favorite video we have seen. Um, it is up there with the Bad Blood um, Triple or yeah, Triple H. HBK Undertaker video, in my opinion, uh, kind of recapping the feud over the um, the IC title. It's fantastic. Uh, we get Doc Hendricks interviewing The Rock with the Nation of Domination, and then we get what the mo- the match I was most excited for, and it's the shortest match on the card. <laughs> this match, lots of action, uh, but unfortunately, it was a quick, quick match. And uh, just uh, basically getting us primed for a very interactive future that these two guys would end up having with one another. The match is so quick, Austin doesn't even get his vest off. Till about three quarters of the way or no, actually, yeah, you're right. (laughs) Doesn't take it off at all. Doesn't take it off at all. And I think about it. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So uh, the match starts with Nation of Domination coming to the ring. Rock's wearing the Intercontinental Championship. Um, and their music like abruptly cuts right before they do their NOD nation of domination salute. Uh, then we hear the, the glass shattering, the stone cold Steve Austin. And we look and he's not coming. He's not coming, but we see like feet moving around underneath the curtain. And then all of a sudden we see the curtains open up and Austin's driving a stone cold truck to ringside. So Austin drives the truck to ringside and opens up the door He proceeds to walk towards the back of the truck, climb into the bed to then just step onto the roof of the truck and then the hood to then enter into the ring. Now, the Nation of Domination proceed to attack Steve Austin. I guess we could say, oh, this is before the, the ref called for the bell. But lots of Nation of the Domination interference throughout this match itself and trying to in Rock's eyes, help him keep his Intercontinental Championship, but in reality, you know, win the Intercontinental Championship, even though he's physically carrying around the title. Um, amazing, amazing spot after Austin begins to recover uh, from the nation beatdown. Austin, Irish whips D'Lo into the road. Or no, I'm sorry, D'Lo ends up charging Austin, who is standing by the ropes near the truck. Austin does a huge backdrop over the top rope onto D'Lo, whose body lands on the hood and his feet basically smash into the windshield. An absolute amazing sight. A huge crowd pop. Austin follows D'Lo out to the truck, drags him up to the roof of the truck, and does a, uh, a stone-cold stunner that the crowd again popped for. Um, 
we get Austin that essentially gets back into the ring and begins to brawl back and forth with the rock. Austin hits the Luthez press. Uh, and then eventually, uh, the continuing the battle where rock throws Austin over the top rope onto the floor and rock distracts the referee for Farouk and Kama to start double teaming and attack Austin on the floor near the truck. Uh, Farouk ends up holding Austin uh, for a chair shot, and Kama picks up a chair. And when I initially saw the chair shot, I thought Farouk got a concussion because the sound that the chair made when it came down and hit Farouk uh, was one of the craziest or worst sounds that I've ever heard. But then on the replay, when I really, really looked, the chair made a lot more contact with the truck behind Farouk. And Farouk essentially more had like a glancing blow from the chair. But it was an impressive looking sight and a, and a really, really stiff chair shot. But Farouk was essentially taken out by that missed uh, chair shot cue from Kama Mustafa. Uh, Austin then ends up turning his sights on Kama and essentially Irish whips into uh, Kama into the truck to essentially now completely eliminate or at least what he thought was completely eliminate the Nation of Domination from the match. Uh, Rock and Austin continue to brawl back inside of the ring. Essentially, the uh, Rock is able to set up Austin in a way where his back is to the ref, and the ref is distracted. I think Kama Mustafa climbed onto the ring apron after he recovered, distracted the ref, and Austin does like a spread eagle onto Austin and then put sucker punches Austin into the groin. We see Rock body slamming Austin. And sets him up perfect in the middle of the ring, kicks one of his arms to the side, one of Austin's arms to the side, and proceeds to do an unnamed at this point, uh, people's elbow. Runs against the two ropes, drops the elbow, almost like no response because I, this is one of the earlier times that The Rock was trying to do this maneuver and get a crowd reaction and the crowd wasn't sure what to, or didn't know how to respond because they weren't as familiar with it. So ends up hitting this unnamed people's elbow for a two count. Rock then hits a second body slam a few moves later, removes his elbow pad to do a second attempt at the people's elbow. And commentary was trying to drill the point that Ock was going to drill the unprotected pointy end of his elbow into Austin. But Austin rolled out of the way uh, from that move. Uh, Austin got up, hit the stunner onto, or attempted to go for a stunner on the rock, but Kama Mustafa essentially began to distract uh, Steve Austin from hitting that stunner. So Austin turns his sights to Kama Mustafa, who's on the apron, knocks Kama Mustafa back down, and in the process of Austin backing up, he bumps into the referee, and the camera didn't initially catch it, but all, we hear the sound as the camera is focusing on the rock, we hear the sound of a maneuver and it ended up being Austin gave the referee a stunner. So we don't really know or see if Austin kicked the ref in the gut and just decided to go crazy and go rogue and hit the stunner on the ref. But on the replay, it actually does show that when Austin knocked, punched uh, Kama Mustafa off the apron, he essentially took a step or two back 
bumped into the referee who was facing Austin and watching Austin not comma off the ringside apron. And Austin just reached back, grabbed the body, and ended up giving referee Mike Kyoto the stunner. So now the referee has essentially been taken out of the equation. And uh, eventually on the replay, it's shown what really happens. As Austin is working his way up after like stunning the ref, and we actually see the ref or Austin begin to crawl over to the referee, thinking it was the Rock and trying to go for a pin. Uh, the referee shows how the Rock is digging a set of brass knucks out of his tights, and uh, we see the brass knucks wrapped on his fist. Rock goes to punch Austin with that right hand. Austin blocks it and ends up kicking him in the gut, hitting him with a stunner. Uh, Jimmy Corderas was working his way to the ring, and after the Stone Cold Stunner, Corderas gets into the ring and ends up counting the 1-2-3 victory in a very short, maybe five, six-minute match. We've got Austin running roughshod over the entire nation, uh, destroying D'Lo between a back body drop and a stunner on the car. A missed cue from Kama takes out uh, Farouk. From the uh, the chair shot to the head, and then Kama gets knocked down a few times off of the apron, and we get a Stone Cold stunner on the Rock, and Stone Cold is announced as the winner, and Austin is able to retrieve possession back of the championship belt. Clearly, Austin is hurt still from SummerSlam. Like he's very obviously still hurt. Short um, match. He's not. Yep. The, yep. He's not in the same shape that he was. The styles changed a bit, but. He didn't need to. Look how over he was. Look at, like, taking the truck out, beating up the nation, just the gimmicks of everything. He didn't. He doesn't need to do a long match. He just needs to come out, do all this stuff, quick five, six-minute match with the Rock. With, honestly, I think a, a well-done ref bump. The camera didn't catch it, but the, the story of it, I thought, was very well done and enjoyed it. Wins, celebrates. He's over. How can you not see this... You know, this attack outside of the ring with the truck and then the match and then him celebrating and not go, yeah, I'm watching this guy every week. Like, it just, it works. As short as it is, as gimmicky as it is, it all works. And, I mean, credit for, hey, we're going to invest in this truck that's going to be destroyed. We're going to get a camera inside the truck when Delo's foot goes through. <laughs> like, it, the whole thing's well done. And honestly, Austin has so many things The the beer truck, the concrete, like all of it. I forgot this vehicle one. Like this is a good one in his in a, in his line his WWF career. Like this was a good spot. I forgot about. Enjoyed the heck out of it. Rock's so close to being there. He's so close. And honestly, I just enjoyed the nation for this match. Just you know, bumping for Austin and being out there for what it what it was. It was fun again. Certainly not making our best of matches, though. It could have, though, if it was longer. <laughs> you know, it's funny. You, you bring that up. I still think this may have been my favorite match of the night. Pro I would agree. It would probably be match of the night. But unfortunately, because it, as, as great as it was for the entire card, the duration doesn't, for me personally, and I can't say for you guys, I don't think it would scrape the top five that of our current list. No, I don't think so either, but I'm just saying if it was longer. I, my question, too, is, okay, D'Lo getting stunned on top of the truck. Is that the best bump we have seen in, in your house? Uh, the Michael's powerbomb through the table from Diesel. 
You think that you got so the other because things are just so Michael's going through tables. <laughs> Nash, Kevin Nash, he just he turned that ninety degrees perfectly to then throw Michaels down. Like I don't think anyone was expecting. Like he was picking up Michaels. There was no way that he was going to legit power bomb Michaels. Jackknife power bomb him on the floor on the apron. But the then the turn the ninety degrees and dropping him square on the table in ninety-five when ECW was starting to get more and more popular, I think that was just uh, uh, such a cool spot. I think too, you gotta think Michaels, of course, going through the table at Bad Blood. Yeah. Michaels going through the table in mind games. Right. I'm seeing a theme seeing here a theme, with Michaels right. going through a table. And then I think fourth is d <laughs> I love d cell of the stutter on top of the truck. Mid-match, they show him in the back bed of the truck. Still kind of just knocked out. Just out cold. Trying to recover. d who was nothing overall at the time, he steals it. You know what it is? Maximizing your Maximizing minutes like Road Dog. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Um, so we follow that up, of course, going into our main event of the evening. We got Ken Shamrock taking on HBK, but before that starts, we do get the Shamrock versus HBK video. Uh, we get Corny, Jim Cornette, um, interviewing Ken Shamrock in the backstage area and then we get it we get the match the main event which is ken shamrock taking on hbk of course with hbk is dx and what did you guys think of this the match or the promos before both i mean just take it away go go right into something that stuck (laughs) out to me in the promos before is they're showing all of these video clips trying to hype up uh, Shamrock, the most da- world's most dangerous man, and the, he's slapping the ankle lock on everybody and every, how everybody's incapacitated. The one video clip that they showed in that whole montage that I thought was interesting, given the recent events, was their, the Bret Hart. And they named Bret Hart as, oh, he's got Bret Hart in the ankle lock and Bret Hart can't escape and blah, blah, blah. I, I, I just I thought that was interesting. Uh, the backstage interview where DX is essentially talking to a live camera, but it's JR that's interviewing him from ringside. I, I, I don't understand the need for DX to be insulting. I mean, I guess that's what their character was uh, were trying to do, but you know, the, the insulting of JR and calling him the big old tub of goo. I mean, I thought that was, it was just a little bit too corny. I mean, it wasn't, like, cool, but it was more corny than anything else. Um, the match itself, I liked the Shawn Michaels' look here in terms of I liked his his entrance ring gear. I liked his in-ring gear. Uh, like, Michaels looked like he was in shape. He was ready to go. It makes me wonder the background demons that he had going on things with drugs, alcohol, and so on, whether or not these were taking a significant toll on his body. I think Michaels looked great. He looked crisp in this match. Um, but you can tell the arrogance, uh, the douchiness of his known demeanor and the backstage clout that he had, the, the not-so-good sides of things of Michaels, they were becoming a little bit more obvious in the match, especially the post-match at the very, very end and his response to the attack at the end from the remaining Hart member, Owen Hart, and so on. Um, 
Hallians, let me let me pass this one over to you. Uh, what were your thoughts on this match? All right, I liked the promo video a lot because I'd forgotten the Shawn Michaels preparing for Ken Shamrock gimmick of his boot being twisted all the way around. That prosthetic boot, yeah, that was pretty funny. It's it's so dumb, and compared to like a lot of the other DX stuff, it it doesn't hold up. But for a forgotten moment, I'm like that's funny. That's just so funny, and it's easy and it's simple. I got a kick out of it. Um, I like the walk to the ring camera shots. They don't do that enough. I really like that. It gives a, a bigger feel to the match. Uh, Shamrock does a horribly monotone promo. Not that he was ever known for his promos, but this one is like extra bad. I think Shamrock looked great for being brand new to WWF. I think Michael's got a good match out of him. I think they did as well as they could do for it. But the finish was never in doubt. Hunter and China break up the match. So Sean is still champ, but Shamrock doesn't lose, which I guess is the best that you could do here. You know? Um, And then at the end is one of the greatest examples of leaving money on the table. Yeah, absolutely. Because, my God, why is that not your Royal Rumble main event the next month? It's interesting how they ended up going back. like Because they furthered the storyline between Kane and Undertaker earlier in the night in the Jeff Jarrett match. So you would think that they're setting up a Kane-Undertaker, but they ended up all thinking it was bigger and they needed to do Mania. So why they decided to go back to Undertaker-Michaels at the Rumble... You know, I, they, I'm sure they explained. I just, I don't remember the raw storylines following this to get there. Uh, but yeah, I, why there was never uh, a full television match as a blow off. And instead they ended up pivoting over to now him feuding with Triple H with, with the European title. Uh, yeah. yeah, there was a lot that could have been done here. The younger brother trying to avenge the wrongs that happened to the rest of the family kind of deal. The other thing, too, that I found odd, and I, and I did write it down in my notes as well, is Rumble, why didn't they go back to Shamrock getting another shot at it if it was ruined, like, yeah. in a Lion's Den match or something, you know what I mean, to keep DX out? It, going to take her in the casket match literally on paper, if you look at it like we're looking at it, makes no sense whatsoever, especially with the way this pay-per-view ended. I mean, sure, Taker, um, well, Taker took the loss to, uh, <laughs> to, to to Jarrett, so he's coming off a loss. But it, but it just it, it's just such odd booking the way they went to Taker, and it is um, kind of interesting. I, I would want to go back and watch those Raws to see how they got there. But I mean, like, what gets me is, is the end of this match out of nowhere, Sean celebrating this blur comes in. It's Owen Hart. He knocks Sean off onto the floor. He beats the hell out of him on the floor. Crowd's going nuts. There's money right there. Owen Hart is the black heart. He's the only one left to the family. He's here to, to hold up his family's name to have revenge against Shawn Michaels. Yes, he should have revenge against Triple H in China as well. Then, well, boy, wouldn't it make sense for him to go after Mr. McMahon? Now he's anti-authority. I'm anti the people in charge here. I'm my own man. I stand strong. That would immediately lead into an Austin feud of, listen, there can only be one top rebel here in this company. It's either you or me, and you broke my neck once, so I already have this going at it. I'm 
that's a year, year and a half of storylines for Owen to make him a main eventer. I honestly think they're like, well, he's under contract. We got to do something with him, but we're not putting the world title on him. So I don't know, figure something out. So they end up relegating him to feud for the third singles title in the company. And after that, and had played off trading the European title back and forth with Hunter, then they do a, let's put him in the nation of domination. And then after that runs through, then they start doing the weird goofiness of uh, I'm doing the Blue Blazer gimmick. I'm now tagging with Jeff Jarrett, his own heart, but I'm also doing the Blue Blazer. And then the Blue Blazer thing goes away for a little bit. Then it begins to slowly come back. And then, unfortunately, we get the the accident at Over the Edge 99. Yeah, just just imagine, too where a uh, uh, storyline wise where okay you have dx who you know michaels has the title and you have owen feuding with triple h say and then austin feuding with hbk just think about the dynamic of an owen austin tag team where they have their enemies are you know you're the friend of the enemy of the enemy is my friend right. or whatever the old saying is that whole dynamic of, well, you broke my neck and I don't know if I can trust you, but I'm going to have to, to, to defeat DX because, you know, the constant interference and things like that, like just what a missed opportunity. And it just makes no sense. And they tried to flirt with that idea in the February, no way out pay-per-view when they ended up having the 10 man tag, when Owen and Austin were on the same five-man team against uh, DX and a few other guys, and Michaels ended up had, was injured because of the casket match. So they did try to play that, and I always thought that was such an awkward pairing of Austin and Owen being on the same team, given that it was only six months ago that they were feuding after the pile driver uh, that had happened and, and the whole hearts versus Steve Austin. So, but yeah, there's just so many directions that they they could have went, and I'm I'm I just how did anybody else not see that that opportunity that was there? Just I mean, you could have you could have had them as I don't like you, I, we're not friends. Given the chance, I would kick your ass any day. But because we both can't stand Vince McMahon, you're the only one I know can trust is not gonna screw me over, right? Like, there's so much that could have been done easily. I mean, you could even do a storyline where Owen and, and Austin were like, I know that I hate you. You hate me. I know where you're coming from. I know you hate me. I know you're going to stab me in the back, but at least you're not one of my friends or someone who I think's my friend that's going to stab me in the back. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? I mean, that's an easy storyline, but it just. I got my eye w- on you kind of deal, but we got to. We got a bigger problem to focus on kind of deal together. It's like, yeah, we'll take care of this and then we'll, we'll get it on at next year's mania. Now just imagine, you know, going to mania 15. Well, I know they, what happens, but just, just imagine what kind of future main event that could have been and and how much money that could have been, especially when you bring back the dynamic of Canada versus us, which we saw Canadian stampede and how hot Owen was. Um, there. I mean, it, it, it's two Batman villains teaming up. Like, listen, we're going to screw each other over as soon as this is done, but we need each other to beat him. Anything else you guys want to add to that match? I mean, 
I mean, Shamrock is literally just kind of the third wheel he at is. this point. Yeah, it, it's more. And again, a lot of this show was, or uh, we talked about it earlier. The Undertaker match was to advance a different storyline. Shamrock was just a, a th- the third wheel to advance or to start a new storyline. Uh, instead of it being Owen Hart versus Shawn Michaels, it was Owen Hart and DX. And really, Triple H in China. Yeah, so I, I think we can all agree. What do, you, what do you guys think the best match of the night is? There's nothing that's going to crack our top five. No. But well, what, what was your favorite, I guess, match and segments and everything? I would say the Austin stuff would probably be the top for me. I, I mean, by default, yeah. There's some good stuff in that light heavyweight match. I'd give credit to stuff done in some of the other matches. But overall, if, you're, if I had to say to someone the one thing you got to watch tonight, Austin Rock. It's quick, but it's very entertaining and very engaging. Yeah, I I would agree with that. I was just hoping it was a little longer. Once I saw that on the card, I was like, "Ooh, yes!" And then, oh, son of a. But it, it's great stuff when it's when it's happening. Um, all right, so we have to rank these now. I was a little shocked with you guys because talking earlier today, I actually kind of liked this pay per view in the weird way where. I thought it was like an easy watch is because it was so ridiculous. I don't know why. All right. Here's because I was going back and forth on it, too, and I got my notes. This is a great episode of Monday Night Raw. It is. This this is not a good pay-per-view. Right. Yeah, actually. Now now that you mention it, maybe that's why, too, for a three hour show, if if you could cut this down to a two hour raw. Yeah. Yeah. With your big reveal being Owen coming back at the end. Right. Yeah, it's a great Raw. It's a fantastic Raw. Everything makes sense as a Raw of progressing to the next pay-per-view. As a pay-per-view, though, no. I, I can see that. All right. So this is our 19th in your oh house we have covered. Isn't that crazy? Uh, so where are we ranking this? Do you guys think it's in the bottom five? You think it's middle of the pack? Probably, probably middle of the pack. Maybe the lower end of the middle. Yeah. Agree. All right, so why don't we start at uh, we'll, we'll we'll start right at number six, the bottom six on our list. Okay, so is it better than Beware of Dog? Yes, absolutely. Okay, is it better than A Cold Day in Hell? Um, yeah, I would say it's better than A Cold Day in Hell. For whole card, yeah. Yeah. All right, is it better than It's Time? Everyone remembers that Vader was on that show. No, he wasn't. <laughs> oh, okay. You think with a name like it's time. That's like saying DX is not on this show. True. Yeah. Uh, I think this is where my cutoff is going to be. I'm just trying to remember everything on that card. Taker versus Terry Gordy under the mask. Sid versus. uh, (laughs) I love it when we go back and we were like, what was on that? And then you just say a match in like Kevin or myself or, or yourself educator. One of us just goes, Oh, son of a, I thought I, like, like we purge it from our brain. Right. Sid versus uh, Brett and Michael's interference caused the, the Sid power bomb win over Brett. Right. Merrill versus Helmsley wasn't bad. Uh, yeah. Bledge Funk versus Leaf was actually not bad. Owen Hart right. Bulldog against Steve's on Razor was what and, it was. And, and it's kind of, we're mixed, comparing apples to oranges, a two-hour card versus a three-hour card. So sometimes... It's a little hard to compare the two together. Um, I, I'm thinking this might be where my cutoff, unless you guys can both sell me on it. What's the next one after it's time? Yeah, I was wondering that too. 
so the next one after its time is Revenge of Taker, and I will not put this above Revenge of Taker. No, all right. So the debate is of uh, is it above or below its time? Um, below. Yeah, it's I think good, it's, it's below. It's that's where I that's where my cutoff was too. It's a good raw, but it's not a good pay per view. Right, and the, and the segments I like are raw segments. All right, so that puts. Uh, Degeneration X in your house at number 12 on our list of 19. 19. Uh, Of course, let's just run through our top three pay-per-views. Number three, of course, being Triple Header. Uh, Number two being International Incident. And number one being Canadian Stampede. And then our top five matches. Uh, Number five is the People's Posse versus Camp Cornette. Number four is the Canadian Stampede uh, 10-man tag. Number three is Brett versus Bulldog at Seasons Beatings. Uh, Number two is HBK versus Diesel. And then number one is the original Hell in the Cell match, HBK versus The Undertaker, which I love. So so next week, uh, we are going to have... Uh, no way out of Texas in your house. Oh my! <laughs> Talk about a wordy one. Uh, and the main event for that, as the educator alluded to, is a non-sanctioned eight-man tag match. Um, so hopefully this pay-per-view holds up because our top two pay-per-views feature multi-man sure, matches sure. as the main event. Right. So maybe this one will uh, will hold up. I'm not. I don't want to go through all the names of the people in the. Uh, in the actual pay-per-view just to kind of keep it a secret for everyone. So yeah, that's it guys. Cool. cool. The educator, what do you want to say to the people at home? Hey, I want to thank everybody for tuning in, for finding us, finding our feed and the opportunity to listen to us, whether it be through Spotify, through Apple, through the retro network and any other feeds that you have access to our show. Uh, I certainly encourage you guys to continue to delve through the piles and piles of content that the Retro Network offers. Listen, take a look at their other podcasts. They have lots of great, great content to keep you entertained. Want to say thank you guys to my two co-hosts. Love the weekly interactions that we get to have, being in different parts of New York State, uh, being able to continue to reminisce on some great memories from 20-plus years ago. Being able to, uh, to to talk the jive with the nostalgia goggles on as to what the hits and the misses were uh, in the rewatches of some of our our favorite times in our, in our, in our wrestling history. Um, yeah, so, uh, you know, tiptoeing again through August. Hopefully going to be finding out what the future is for New York State public education and whether or not we're going back to school. So looking forward to what future... nuggets of information are going to bring yeah and i just want to say i just want to thank everyone for joining us today um if you don't have school in the fall every thursday the educator is having lessons on (laughs) wrestling in your house (laughs) pay-per-views what a curriculum what a curriculum that would be um no uh you could follow me always uh at maddie treats on twitter um yeah, thank you for listening to us. Hopefully you found us um, either on our separate feed or, of course, on the Retro Network main feed. Um, it's easy. The Retro Network main feed, you just get that full content of ourselves, Wizards, Sequel Quest, uh, the TRN uh, regular show. What is it? What is it actually called? Oh, just the Retro Network. It's just I call it the main show. 
yeah, so check out the main show. Um, but also, too, don't forget about our house show contest uh, that is going live and well. If you visit theretronetwork.com, um, right to the right, as soon as you log on, you will see the WWE goodie contest giveaway where you can win an in your best of in your house DVD. Of course, the Stone Cold Steve Austin art print uh, done by Rob Schamberger. And some uh, some retro network goodies. Um, also, too, just make sure you are following myself, uh, TRN House Show, which I'm sure Kevin will go over um, right when I'm done, um, or you know, at Mass Library. Any one of us, we will be tweeting out everything, so that way you guys have easy links to it. And uh, the Mass Library, why don't you take us home? All right. Thank you to Retro Network for providing home for us. Thank you to WWE Network for the content. Uh, thank you to all of our listeners there. Shoutouts to our uh, friends at Odds with Wrestling Podcast. Also on Thursdays, um, you can follow me, MassLibrary.com is my personal site, and at MassLibrary is all of my social media. Speaking of social media, make sure to follow at TRN House Show that is on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram because one follow equals an entrance into our contest. And I want to thank my two co hosts. And I also want all of our listeners... Oh, thank you, Richard Reeder, for our logo. And I also want to thank all of our listeners and hope that you stick around for our new show as I make more heavy metal references to these guys. Heavy metal. That's, that's a tag team, man. <laughs> Otis, uh, the educator, myself, and Tucker. That's <laughs> all. That's our Survivor Series team. <laughs> This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.